You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome back for part two of my conversation with Robert O'Hara. You're listening to You Can't Say That on the Broadway Podcast Network. If you're enjoying the conversation, visit me at bpn forward slash you can't say that. What do you think about some of the new plays, the new young playwrights coming up now? You said you've been doing this for 25 years. I didn't think you were much older than 25, but okay. No, Um, I'm going to be 50 next year. That's crazy town. Fifty-seven. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, I think it's. I think it's so fantastic. I mean, sometimes I go to these plays. I'm like, I could have never gotten away with some of the stuff that they're getting away with, and I love it. I think it's wonderful. And my only concern is that the rigor, uh, and that I want there to be a rigor because I don't think it's helpful to have just a new exciting voice that is allowed to sort of just flounder, you know, and just be there and that we lost them because they're new and different. I had George Wolf clobbering me every day going, you may be interesting, but there's five other people just as interesting and there is a rigor involved. And I don't feel that sometimes that the artistic, uh, 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 community or the artistic heads of these theaters are actually holding their feet to the fire, that they're sort of allowing them just to be exciting and new and different, you know, and, and sometimes that can not help. I know? cannot agree with you more. I feel like sometimes they're like, well, we got some money for something black. Well, the black people made it, so it <laughs> right. must be good. And you're like, this exactly. thing was not ready. Why right. did you put that up there? That is not ready. There is nobody holding anybody to a standard. And why did you put those two people together? Yeah. Yeah. That person has nothing to do with this, and they're incompatible, and you can tell it right now because they're arguing with each other, and you're too afraid to step in and say, this is behavior that cannot happen, right. or this has to change here. You know, uh, And I feel like that does a disservice not only to the work, but to the artist as well, because it's yeah. not allowing them to, them to be in the real world. Because in another place, you're going to get fired and your work is not going to be done and your reputation is going to be soiled. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and unless you sit someone in a room and go, look, this is unacceptable behavior. This is not, you need to rewrite this moment or do this or we don't do this here. Then you, they can go to their next experience and be like, okay, I learned something other than just being, you know, unique and exciting and having a, a, a different voice, you know. Uh, so I find that to be, happening more and more unfortunately yeah I, me too and it's made me just not want to go i'm like ah, they're not gonna be up to the standard no that, that, you know there has to be a standard yeah you know and i and i and i remember seeing jelly's last jump and i was like wh- my head was like exploding because it was there was so much rigor there you know what i mean and it, it, it could have been a complete mess that had a thousand and one how the hell are you supposed to he ain't you know uh, uh he's tap dancing but he's a composer like and he's singing but it's like how do you make that even coherent you know uh but there was so much i i completely thought oh yeah he can tap dance and compose and sing you know uh and that was sort of amazing to see how the rigor can actually drag the story into a reality that is actually very very comforting uh, because you feel like you're being taken care of. Whenever I go see work by George, no matter how I think about the play after us, I know that there's a rigor involved. And know? I think just for people, let's talk about what rigor means. So we're not like speaking above people's head. What do you mean when you say rigor? I think that there needs to be a healthy sense of challenging in the room, a healthy sense of experimentation, uh, and a healthy sense of sort of a critique 
you know, the, in the room, in the, in the making of it. Yes. You know, and that you should not be afraid to be challenged by anyone in this room and that, you know, that that will make the work better and mm -hmm. that you don't have to feel like in fear of someone disagreeing with you or changing that thing up at the last minute to make it work or figuring out this hasn't worked for the last two weeks. Now let's see if it can work in this way. So I think it's about critiquing, it's about challenging, uh, and it, it is about continuing to keep an eye out for what you don't know, mm -hmm. you know, and allowing people in the space that know things that you don't know, you know. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would think that that would be what makes me difficult is that um, I come in the room, I've read it, I've done research about the history, the people, the, every subject that's in there. So I come in the room with questions. What is on your mind? Because I always feel like there are an infinite number of choices for every moment in a, in, in a, in a play. Mm. And I'm capable of giving you any of them. Now, I'm going to ask you questions so I get a sense of what is the thing you want. And if my asking you a question <laughs> of your work <laughs> right. is going to get you all for kerfuffle... I don't need to be in the room no. because my mind is going is thinking of a, an infinite number of things and I don't want to do an infinite number of things. I want to do the one that's going to get you where you want to go. Right. Cuz I want to conserve my resources and exactly. energy as well. Right. But you know, but white men and women are allowed to be difficult. They're allowed to be fully and totally difficult. Oh my god, and cry about it and fully. cuss people out yes. and just act a fool and you're supposed to just be like yeah, that's them. But she, you know, she mm -hmm. comes on that stage and she serves. You know, mm -hmm. she's definitely she brings it. But that, you know, so so I I've always liked people that other people said you know was well, a little difficult because I'm assuming I people would say I'm certainly George is difficult. You know, but I don't think that that necessarily means that oh therefore. I'm not supposed to investigate with them this piece of work. Well, this piece of work is difficult, you know? Uh, I don't believe that there needs to be this sort of process of everyone uh, being polite and everyone uh, being concerned about everyone's feelings. You know what I mean? And I think about my mother, and I think about seeing her go to work every day, and I can't imagine that her boss would come up and go, are you happy? <laughs> Is this paperwork making you feel fulfilled? You know, uh, would you like to contribute more to the room? You know, that didn't happen. Like, the, she came and she did work. She had two kids to support and she came home and she did it. You know, uh, and I think that there's a lot of coddling mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in the room and, and, and wanting to keep, you know, other people at bay because if Tanya says something, it may upset somebody else and then we have to deal with that and da 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 da. And I'm just like, you know, you have to make space for everyone, I think. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's so tedious for me. It's like I, I get tired, I go see plays, and I ask the actors, so what was the conversation in the room? Right. What's the play about? And I'm like, I don't know. Anybody even asking me? You know, I just did what they told me to do. And I'm like, oh, if that's what the work is now, I don't I don't need to do that because exactly. it's not interesting to me. No, no. And I feel that way, too. I've been asked to do certain things. I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to have those conversations in that community with those people because you're not interested in having this conversation. The real you, conversation. Yeah, you just want to do had. this play because it won some award or whatever that is being done by everybody else on earth. And I'm just like, I don't need to come and do that. Find right. somebody else. It's, and it's always, it's just so, it just allows me to actually <laughs> breathe easier, to not have to think that, you know what? Uh, if I don't do this, someone else is going to do it, and therefore I'm going to lose an opportunity. And my partner is always going, you know, it's a great opportunity. I'm like, there'll be others. There'll be other opportunities. You know, I have to conserve the energy 
that I have and also protect my heart, mm. you know, because I don't want to put myself in a place that I'm going to be unhappy mm. for the sake of a play. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. That's not, I, I, I don't have that need anymore. Mm. Uh, to sort of like, I, when I was young, I was like, you know, I can't wait to go around the world and the country and direct here and direct there. And I'm like, you know, I'm not going there. <laughs> it's cold. I'm not going there in December or in July. No, I don't care who wrote it. No. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? no. And that's just, it has nothing to do with the work. It has everything to do with like, I'm not putting myself in that position to be, have to negotiate that mm. right now. There are other things that I can do, you know. Uh, and I'm lucky because I get to write and direct. And I know that some of my playwriting colleagues or some of my directing colleagues, you have to sort of like, you know, do seven or eight jobs directing to make a living. And I'm like, I couldn't do it. I'm seeing, I, I, I look at the trace and I'm just like, how are you directing another play? Like, what are you actually going to be able to contribute after doing four other plays all over the place? I mean, because I try and bring as much as I can to the process. And I know at times that I just simply don't have, and people think I work a lot, you know, but I'm seeing these other people like doing all this stuff and it's difficult. It's a di and also as a playwright, the idea of writing a play in New York and then hoping that other people will do it so that you can make money is a very difficult prospect, you know? Yeah. It's very challenging. So I, I feel blessed in that I'm able to work in both areas of my skill set. Um, because there's, it, it, and I tell students all the time, you better find something else. Mm. You know, you have to supplement. You may think that I'm, you know, this lead actor. You better learn how to tell a joke, you know. <laughs> you better learn how to, uh, to tap something. You know, because there's going to be other people walking up your back. This, oh, she can't do it. I can do it. And I can spin while I'm doing it, too. Right. You know, uh, so you have to be a well-rounded artist, you know. Yeah. Uh, and create your own opportunities. Yeah. I, yeah, I tell all my students, you got to be makers now. Yes. And because now the world is opening up. we got like six million more people coming online. Those people are going to be like, ooh, I can be a movie star. I can just put myself on tape. And exactly. They're going to put themselves on tape and they're going to have it memorized and they're going to have imitated the people who did it before. Right. And you are competing against people who are hungry yes. for it. Yes. And then their millions and millions of likes, Spielberg going to call them up because they got a million, millions of likes. <laughs> and you done spent all this time in acting school thinking you're perfecting some technique. And this woman over here got five million likes. Yes. And that's why she up in this movie. Right. <laughs> you no, know what I mean? That is the reality of today. Yes. Which means there's more opportunity for everybody. Yes. And 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 it gets narrowed. And so you really have to pick and choose what you're going to spend Absolutely. your time and energy in and what you're going to build with that time and energy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, it's so true. You know, and I think about slave play and I think about sort of like, you know, how it has landed in different communities and whatever. And how I sort of, you know, you had Jeremy and Jakina on before. And, and, and I had to tell Jakina and I said, you know, it, they're going to come for you, and they're going to, and some of them, most of them, are going to look like you, mm. right? And they're going to come hard, and therefore you have to protect yourself because you can't actually get on the stage and also battle everything that's happening. You know, you have to have a firewall in a mm -hmm. certain way, and that you know, just because someone has an opinion does not mean I have to hear it, mm -hmm. you know, or participate in it. Mm -hmm. And I think that what the internet has done is that it has said, "Oh, I have something to say. Listen." Mm -hmm. And then it shows up on your feed when you wake up. And I'm like, I actually did not need to hear that. 
You know what I mean? You could have kept that to yourself and I don't need to wake up and see it. Uh, so there are places that you sort of have to curate your experience so that you don't, so you can do your job, really. Right. Uh, and I got off of like, I've never tweeted anything in my life, but I removed myself from Twitter and from Instagram. And, you know, and Jeremy is the king of that stuff. Yes, He's he like is. all over the place. I'm like, Jeremy, don't send me nothing else. <laughs> I don't want to hear it and I don't want to see it. But I think he has mastered this thing of the moment, which is one, which Catherine Hepburn said, I think. No, I don't know who said it, but there's no such thing as bad publicity. Right. If you're talking about me, I'm on your mind, so right. I'm succeeding. Right. And uh, he just works it all. I remember when I was doing Black Perspectives Matter, when I left Mother Courage and Dr. Kimberly Crunch, I was like, oh, yes, collect all of that negative stuff, because then when you want to go and get, get the funding for it, so you have all the data to show that <laughs> right. this is what happens to people when they speak the truth and blah, 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 blah. Right. And I was like, oh, okay. Okay, like there's a, a metric and an algorithm to even collecting what we think of as a negative stuff that you can quantify and, and turn into money for business and yes, funding and stuff yes. like that. And it's, it's exhausting to me. Yes, yeah. But and Jeremy you, understands it he and completely. it's like he w was born knowing how to do that or something like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And I love being anonymous. Like I love at certain points of being able to whatever uh, uh, level of attention that I've gained that I can sort of, you know, pick up the phone and speak to someone and not make it a big deal. I don't have to go online and be like, so-and-so did, da 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 but that I can actually go and work behind the scenes. And I remember one thing that has to do with you and this whole sort of Mother Courage thing, and I think that Play Bill had released Brian's entire thing or whatever and then sort of like picked and chose what you had written or whatever. And I remember calling, I don't know who it was, but I told my agent to get me the number of so-and-so. And I said, we have to have her entire letter. You have, they have to publish all of it. You know, you can't just go, oh, here's the whole thing and this is what she said, you know? And I think that that to me is how I operate. And that if there is something that I want to get inside of, or I want to stick my finger in, that uh, I can do it quietly and do it outside of everybody knowing and everybody uh, putting it on the internet. And then some people like Jeremy, operate in that sphere in a very brilliant and amazing way that I just feel like I, 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 I'm not facile in that way, you know what I mean? Because I'll be like, what, what, wait? You know, I'll be like, you know, and I would just become evil, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? But uh, I don't think that everything has to be evil. I, I know that I wrote uh, uh, an artistic director and I was like, you know, you just announced your season and I would just love to speak to you because I have looked through the history of your theater and you have never hired a person of color at all to direct. And this person wrote me back and was dumbfounded. It was like, well, that's not, I can't, I, I don't understand. And then wanted to have a meeting with me with five other people in the world. I'm just, I'm just writing. I just wanted you to respond to that. And I, I didn't go online and be like, call you out. Right. And, you know, and tell everybody, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I just said, uh, I would just love to know uh, why that's the case. And if there, you have a problem with black people or women or uh, people of color directing. And so, you know, we formed a sort of a relationship in a way. But that's how I like to operate. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think other people, sort of like operating that let me put you on blast mm -hmm. on the internet right now and this is what happened to me uh, and that's just a different type of sphere absolutely uh, that I'm just not facile in yeah. absolutely absolutely mm. so what is next um, there's a few things that's next that one I can speak about um, I'm doing a musical which we offered to you by what the musical? way oh <laughs> And got a firm that. no, <laughs> by the way. At Willie Mammoth? No, it's in D.C., but it's not Willie. Oh, okay. It's a signature. But it's at D.C. Uh, but uh, 
but you know, because you always want to sort of like, um, if you don't have to audition, <laughs> you don't. Yes. Because I true. really do not like it at times. I like to go, oh, you know what? Let's see what this person will bring yes. to the space. Um, and so I'm doing a musical at, at, in DC uh, uh, at the Signature Theater called Gun and Powder. Mm-hmm. What and is it about? It is about these two women who, and it's in the uh, early part of the 19th century, uh, and they're sharecroppers, and they're very, very light-skinned, and they're having a difficult time uh, negotiating, uh, making enough money to sustain their family or what have you, and they're two sisters. Mm -hmm. And they decide, you know what? We're light enough that we may be able to pass. Mm. And so they decide to pass, but as outlaws. So they start to rob these white people mm. uh, on trains and in bars and in banks. And so they become these sort of outlaw sisters. Uh, and then uh, uh, life int- intrudes and, uh, and they have to deal with uh, if they're going to continue this facade. Now, of course... Every black person they encounter knows. Knows they black. Exactly. You just look at them. Yeah, black. black. Yeah. But, you know, white people uh, are buying into it and getting robbed <laughs> all over the place. So it's, it's, so it's about the gun that they use and the powder that they put on their face, uh-huh. you know, as opposed to the gunpowder. Exactly. So it's a sort I of love a, that. A, a play on the word. And it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, uh, musical and funny and touching uh, by these two people from NYU. I think they wrote it at NYU. And they're new writers, uh, and it won the Richard Rogers Rogers wow. Award. And so, you know, there's a lot of interest in it. So I'm very excited to um, to work with them on it. So that's actually what's next. And them doing some workshops and some other stuff that's going to become public uh, later on. But yeah, that's what's immediately next. And what is your soul story? Is your soul calling you to speak on or write about? that you haven't had the moment to do it. You've been mm. busy. You've been a real busy. But what is it like? This is, this is, this is calling me. I can't I won't get to it, but it's calling yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's two. One of them is that I had a friend a few years ago kill himself. Mm. Uh, be, and he was a very good friend of mine and a very dear friend of mine, an old friend of mine, uh, who had decided that HIV did not exist and then ending up suffering from it without uh, acknowledging that it exists. And, you know, people are living with HIV for decades and for years, and there's no reason why anyone today should die from HIV. And yet he didn't believe it exists, so he refused treatment. Uh, And he was a very complicated uh, person. And so I have this, and I have his diaries, Mm. uh, which he uh, left for me and another person to clean out his uh, home and he got rid of a bunch of stuff except these diaries mm. and I just have learned so much about him and and so much about you know what his struggle was and that we actually don't have you know uh, the story of uh, sort of the black gay male and what their relationship to HIV has been. There's a lot of white stories mm-hmm. and a lot of white male stories. And we also don't have the women's stories either. Mm-hmm. But there seems to be no uh, 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 small shortage of white gay men on stage talking about how difficult it is to be white and gay mm-hmm. and a man. Uh, and so I feel like there's a space in there that needs to be investigated. Uh, and I've done work uh, around those issues uh, and, and that identity, but I think that there, but particularly around uh, uh, HIV, 
uh, is something that I'm interested in with, uh, especially because my friend taking his life because of this. Uh, and then there's also this idea that I've been working on that I found fascinating and that at certain point in our history, you could literally bring your slave to college with you. And that if you did not have a slave, you could rent a slave from the college. What? Yes. I don't know anything about this. Yes. And the Southern colleges are now beginning to acknowledge it and that they actually would rent slaves from the uh, neighboring plantations and lease them out to the college students um, as they came. Because, you know, you didn't want to come to college and, and not have someone that could make your food and fix your bed and get you everything you need oh like they God. did at home on the plantation. So you would take your slave or you would rent a slave. And I was just thinking how fascinating that is to me. And it's connected to another idea, which I won't share, but uh, but I always have like 900 ideas. But that to me has been fascinating. Uh, That's fascinating. And the amount of money that was being made off of these slaves uh, being brought to college. And what that must have meant to people who were not allowed to read to people who were not allowed to be educated, to be in a place of education. And I'm talking about, you know, uh, major universities founded by, you know, presidents. Right. Uh, they all allowed this sort of thing to happen. So that has been something that I've been investigating. And you know plenty of them were reading. And yes. learning and yes. getting the college education yes. while they went to laundry and cooking and everything. Exactly. Like <laughs> Which is what's so fast. So that's, of course, the story, like, you know, because, you know, the world wants us to believe a certain thing, but in fact, we were everywhere. Everywhere. Doing everything. You know the story about one of uh, John, Bo John Box Brown. Yes. The woman who financed him was. Henry this, Box Brown. Henry mean, Box yeah. Brown was a slave woman who worked for financiers, and she was listening to them, and she had a white man who would invest for her. Wow. And so she was very, very wealthy, and she was funding him. And when he died, of course, his wife you know, kept all the money and didn't give her anything. So she died in poverty. Really? But for a time, she was one of the richest women in New York. Wow. Because she was just that slave listening to all the fine <laughs> right. stuff. And, like, and, and putting her numbers together. Who, right, and had a, a, a white man who would invest for her and, and give her... Yeah, and I'm sure there are hundreds and thousands yes. of stories like that, yeah. you know. Uh, the people who were promised their freedom and then, you know, after it was over, they were like, oh, no, you have to stay or we're going to sell you off to this other person. The yeah. brutality of hope... You know, uh, and what that would do to a person to hope and to dream that somehow uh, in this relationship we actually have a relationship, and then once you are gone, then no one accepts that that was even in existence. You know. And my personal—it seems petty, but it is one of my personal pet peeves—that every time I have seen a movie about slavery or a play about slavery, we are dressed in beautiful cotton dresses, <laughs> and cotton was king. They was not putting no cotton right. on no slave. Right. I mean, in the stories the, 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 of the history, is that they were wearing potato sacks and mm. burlap, and they were half naked, and that's why it was so easy to rape them, because mm. they were half naked, and they were barefoot, and they walked us across the country in wintertime, mm. barefoot, with no clothes on. I'm just tired of seeing slaves dressed like the misses of the house. Mm -hmm. Cotton was the wealth of the land. It was not going to no slaves. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And, the, you know, and also... To just that everybody was the same type of slave, too. You know what I mean? And that there's no distinction of how they had all these different people, you know, that were in all these different locations on a plantation, mm. and they all had all these different sort of needs and, and power uh, among them. Uh, it's always a them and us, actually. Mm. And, and I'm actually 
whenever I do anything that has to deal with slavery, I, I'm always fascinated by the fact that we believe that slavery only happened to black people. Mm. And that there were a bunch of people sitting up in a house, sipping tea with 400 people outside that could kill them at any moment. And how the fear must have been inside mm. them to know that they're also trapped inside this system as well. Mm. It's not just happening to those people outside. And what that has done to our country. Mm -hmm. Because we won't even acknowledge it. Yeah. The fear that one has. And knowing that what you are doing is fucked up. Mm -hmm. And I could kill you at any moment. Mm -hmm. you know. But... There's fear in me also because of what I've been taught, you know. Uh, so I'm interested in how it has affected everyone. Um, yeah. But this is lovely. And I think this apartment is crazy. It, I I, we're sitting in an apartment, actually. <laughs> it's a beautiful apartment. We've got orchids <laughs> in front of us. We're looking at the beautiful yes. city, the skyline of New York City. And a microwave and a stove. Chocolate this would be like $4,000. Like, this would be like uh, a very I nice... I this would be like way more than that. Really? Is it a, a one-bedroom? time ago. How many bedrooms? Oh, this is so, yeah, I think maybe four Like, or five. we could just move in here, you know, like, when I get kicked <laughs> the out. The view is like, nice. I'm going to just sleep on the podcast floor <laughs> over there. <laughs> yeah, this is lovely. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you wanted to speak about since it's, you know, you can't say that. Is there anything you haven't been right, able to I say that you want to know, say? Why is it called you can't say that? Because I was a little bit wary. I was like, <laughs> wait a second. With Tanya Pinkins? And you can't say that? And I'm known for not saying what I'm supposed to say. <laughs> Well, actually, yeah. when Dory approached me about doing the podcast, I said, well, why don't we call it the Politically Incorrect Podcast? Mm. And I have to talk to George that way. And he mm. said, no, no, you should call it, you can't say that. Show me you can. I was like, okay, George. Right. <laughs> so that's how it got its name. Now, I wanted to ask you, how did you meet George? Oh, my God. The George story? That is such a long story. I met George when he was at NYU. And I was as a graduate student when he was at a graduate student, and Keisha Bostic, who now is nothing, Catherine something else, she's a, a scorer, scores things. Um, I was on a soap opera, and I was doing my first nightclub act at Sweetwaters. Mm. Does that even exist anymore? No, that was yeah. where Whitney Houston did her first six concerts, and yeah. I got to see them. Really? Oh yes, Whitney's first six concerts. You got to see all six of them. All six of them, because once you've seen her once, you would like you needed to go there again. She couldn't walk, she couldn't talk, she couldn't dress, but when she started <laughs> to sing, you were like, yes, yes, I need to come again. But she was just as she really was a street urchin. Like, that was a Pygmalion story. Really? In Houston. Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, my God. And so I was doing my first nightclub act there, and Keith was like, you got me, George. He's brilliant. He's brilliant. And so I got to read what would become the Colored Museum. Mm. And I was like, this man is a genius. Mm. He'll write my nightclub act. And I was not so articulate with how I explain things to people. I'm getting better. So he wrote me a beautiful nightclub act, beautiful nightclub act, but it wasn't the colored museum. And I had just assumed that my nightclub act would have the elements of the colored museum in it mm. because it was so extraordinary. And I tried to articulate that to him and I didn't come off right. I don't know. He heard me say something so terrible that he didn't come to the show and he didn't speak to me for the next seven years during which he <gasps> became the George C. Wolf. Are you serious? <laughs> yes. Oh my God! Does he acknowledge this? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We've talked about all of this. Oh yes, yes. We have talked about all of this. Amazing. Yes. That's amazing. 
Interesting. I don't know people who I have not spoken to for seven years. Oh, George has I'm... exiled me so many times. <laughs> I don't even care anymore. I'm like, I'm going to just say what I'm going to say and then I might get exiled for a while. It's okay. Right. You're coming from the cold. <laughs> I mean, eventually. and that's my kind of favorite kind of person. It's like, you know, he'll get mad at me. He might not talk to me for a while, but I know that he respects me. Yes. And so I can come to him and I can challenge him. And he'll be like, nobody asked your opinion. Right. But, you know, it went in there and he heard it. And, and he's an artist. He knows I'm an artist, too. And I'm saying something yes. from the point of view of an artist. That's my favorite kind of person to work with. I want to work with somebody that I can just bring my truth to and they'll take it or they'll leave it. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, people would ask me about how, him as a mentor. I was like, it was not soft and cuddly. No. It was not, oh, you need to know. It was bump, bop, bump, bop, bump, bop, 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 knocks on the head. You ain't supposed to do this. How don't do that? Blah, 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 blah. This is not going to happen. Can you do? This? And I was like, it was like, it was hard knocks. And that's the best knocks, thing because you, you wouldn't know? know you survived the hard knocks, then you know you can do anything. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I feel like there's once again there's all these people who are sort of like, oh, you're special because you have a unique and interesting voice. And I was like looking at a person who had an amazing voice who was just like, oh, this is what has to happen. Like, uh, if you can't do it, step out the way because somebody else will have to do it for me, right? right. And there was no. And I remember. Uh, uh, um, uh, I asked him when I became uh, assistant director on a show of his or whatever, assistant to the director. And I said, Mr. Wolf, uh, so, uh, oh, I said George. I was calling him George at the time. So what would you um, like for me to do? How would you like for me to work uh, with you as an assistant? He's like, I just need you to do whatever the fuck I need you to do whenever the fuck I need you to do it. <laughs> Can you do that? And I was like, uh, Okay. Because I asked him to let me assistant director. He was like, Tanya, you cannot go and pick up Starbucks. <laughs> I was like, of course I can, George. I can totally pick up Starbucks. Whatever you want me to do, I can do it. No. No. Mm-mm. So he wouldn't let me. <laughs> Some people are not meant to be assistant directors. And you're not one. No. I would be a great assistant director. No. I would be telling on the side, now, George, you know that. <laughs> exactly. Which is exactly what assistant director should not be doing. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Robert. Thank you. This is much easier than I thought it was going to be. I thought oh, we were going to get into trouble. Why would we get into trouble? Is there a way we could get into trouble? No, I don't want to get into trouble. <laughs> no. 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 Trouble I think follows that, me. You know, we talk about things that aren't the average things that you talk about on the podcast. We're having just a conversation yes. of, about whatever is interesting to me on that day. Yes. No, and I think that you were so amazing. So I'm so happy to uh, spend this time with you. So thank you. I really am happy to do it because I have a story that I thought you were with me through Jelly Stuff Jam. <laughs> and I've been telling myself that story about you forever. Like, oh, I know him. He was he was George's intern. Now he can't even talk to me. Turns out you didn't exactly. know me at didn't all. Didn't know you at all. <laughs> Not at all. I, I saw you I on a stage. Like, I was like, Robert, g- give me your number. And you like put in your website. I was like, I, I knew him when he was a child. How is he giving me a website? <laughs> exactly. But you have my number now. I do. Great. Thank you so much. This is You Can't Say That Podcast. My special guest is Robert O'Hara. And we are on the Broadway Podcast Network. Thanks for listening to You Can't Say That, the show where you can. I'm Tanya Pinkins. This is part of the Broadway Podcast Network, produced by Dory Berenstein and Alan Seals, edited by Derek Gunther, music by Anthony Norman, available wherever you get your podcast. And visit me on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and let me know what you'd like to hear me talk about. For more information, visit bpn.fm forward slash YCST. 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.